This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Today is a Halloween episode. So you may need to brace yourself a little bit for it. Actually, I know you will. And for the book I'll be talking about today. My producer, Marco Timpano, said I should absolutely blame him for this, too, because he was the one who recommended this book. But there's no blame to be laid anywhere. The book I'll be discussing today was extremely well written. If it presented me with a personal challenge for the visceral reaction it elicited. But first... Here's my opening personal story to orient our discussion. One late, wintry afternoon a few years ago, while my parents were still alive and I was still with them, on this late, wintry afternoon, there was a knock at the door. I was bewildered because we didn't often have guests then. My mother was virtually sequestered because of her compromised immune system during her treatments. I was even more baffled when I opened the door to a police officer. He cleared his throat, and I held my breath. He explained that a dead body had been found in the backyard of a neighbor two doors down. The body had been stuffed inside a doghouse located on the outside perimeter of their property. I'm not kidding. This is serious. It's a true story. I couldn't make this stuff up. In my neighbor's primarily Italian-Canadian community, the officer had already knocked on two other neighbors' doors. Ours happened to be the third, and the one I'm pretty sure that, as Grimm would say, was just right. Well, the first neighbor he visited had opened the front door ever so slightly and then asked the officer for his badge before the neighbor even made any gesture to comply and he declined to answer more than a few basic questions or let the officer in. At the next house, our neighbor Lydia, who had clearly been quarreling with her husband again, opened the door wide at the specter of the officer and bawled out, Vito! The police are here for you! before she abandoned the bewildered officer in the main entrance to their house and left him to wander around in search of her husband. Then he arrived at our house. There my parents pressed him to come in, made him an espresso, served some biscotti and fresh fruit, and then we chatted about what it was like to live there, an area lushly forested, what might have attracted some people for its beauty, but for others for its isolation. The same officer didn't share information or theories about this person's death or about the victim proper, except to suggest that the body may have been there for a while, undetected. Of course, that was likely, because this person had been relegated to the edge of the property, at the edge of our lives and our lines of vision and seeming interest. It's also where we push those stories we don't want to remember. The kinds of stories that we repress and that yet return that we want to shove off into corners, into basements and attics. We want to forget, I think, 
that these kinds of stories are part of ourselves. And maybe, just maybe, that's a way we're able to move on with the more palatable realities and mundane business of living. Well, Kevin Lambert, the author of You Will Love What You Have Killed, is highly uninterested in allowing us to forget about any of those kinds of stories, and perhaps in some ways has a rather developed palate for insisting upon our reading them, reading about the macabre, the violent, the gruesome, the horrific, as much as for the rancor and pain and rage that we stifle. He almost makes Stephen King look like Mary Poppins, or Dexter rather like the nice boy living next door. I mean it, really. I had to put this book down at times to catch my breath because of its almost casual or nonchalant sense of violence, especially in a place or context where we least expect it. In this sense, he's also edging for space alongside Patrick Senegal, the Quebec author based in Drummondville, who is the reigning writer of horror in French Canada. Now, before I allow you to think I'm being negative about you will love what you have killed, allow me to correct the impression, and quickly. Lambert is an exceedingly fine writer. The prose is adeptly translated by Donald Winkler from the French version, Tu aimeras ce que tu as tué, and published in English as You Will Love What You Have Killed by Biblioasis in 2020. It is precise, razor-sharp, unflinching, modulated with great care, vacillating between a stream-of-consciousness narrative to short, pithy observations. Each chapter is its own story, told from the perspective of various characters who live in Chicoutimi, Quebec, including, by the way, one character also very cheekily named Kevin Lambert. The lies of these characters intersect with each other, at times suggesting a stifling, claustrophobic proximity. I think the setting in some ways has also been deployed with great skill to undermine readerly expectations. This is not New York or Los Angeles, my dear listeners. Chicoutimi is one of the boroughs of the Saguenay, about 200 kilometers north of Quebec City, and a population of no more than 70,000. There's a picturesque fjord that leads up to it, and a surrounding landscape that might have lent itself to stereotypes about the natural beauty and scenic backdrops with a romantic narrative a la Maria Chapdelaine. International listeners, Maria Chapdelaine is a reference to a rather tired narrative about a backwoods romance that takes place in the rural landscape of Quebec, and specifically Lac Saint-Jean, which is not that far away from Chicoutimi. So we're not talking about big city life, but the stories that are set in this narrative are very far from romance. The hostility and anger simmers below the surface, erupts into the narrative in the most profoundly disturbing ways. These stories aren't exactly a form of realism either, although they certainly are a form of horror. I can say this with fairly great certainty because one of the most disturbing facets of these stories is the reappearance of characters who were killed off in earlier stories. At first I felt confused, like what? Didn't young Sylvie, a child about 
eight years of age die when she became lodged under a big pile of snow that another character, none other than Kevin Lambert himself, was clearing with a snowblower until she is, quote, torn to pieces by the snowblower's sharp-edged screw spitting out a brief jet of scarlet snow onto the snowbank with Sylvie pulverized inside, end quote. Well, yes, I did read that, until she appears again later, visible at first only to the narrator and then as a full-grown adult. But the deaths keep mounting, a litany of accidents, other traumas, such as the transgender figure Pole, who insists on giving birth when she finds herself pregnant only to, quote, split in half on the floor of varnished two-by-fours when she gives birth, end quote. Pole gives birth to a son, Christine, whose dog is given rat poison, after which time his taxidermist grandfather transforms the dog into, quote, a beautiful pair of slippers. Christine fares a little better. While with his father at the local zoo to see the cougars, Christine is gently nudged by his father so that Christine loses his footing and falls onto the cement where the cougars are roused by his whimpering and attempts to raise himself up on his broken legs. Our narrator casually observes that the, quote, moment passes, and Christine does as well. And it is likely Christine's death, our narrator adds, that inspires the man who witnesses it to later, quote, slit his wife's throat and those of her two children before turning the blade on himself. Even one of the narrators speaks about the last day of his own life, the, quote, very real day that exists nowhere in my memory, because the morning has ended, the afternoon is coming, and I am down on my hands and knees on the asphalt, crawling along to find the ball under the truck. Suddenly I remember the sky going dark and the wind coming up and the door to Sylvie's house opening, End quote. He and the other children uncannily revive, return back to school to play with their classmates and friends, so the characters die and return, either to die again or to be involved in someone else's death. Are they ghosts? One narrator reminds us that you mustn't say ghost because it's a bad word. But there are so many other bad words in this narrative that we can't help but contrast those words with the word ghost and those ghosts that populate the narrative. Now, this may be part of a narrative device or design that suggests that perhaps, just perhaps, these children are being born into a world that is dangerous not only physically, but also ideologically. So there are currents of racism and sexism and homophobia that run through this narrative, represented by teachers who are more obsessed with discipline or attempts to hide excruciating and traumatic realities that course below the thin veneer of mundane daily life. It's for this reason, I'm sure, that Le Devoir, a Quebec-based newspaper, seemed to approach the novel as I did, one they characterized as sauvagement étrange, mais aussi furieusement ensorcelant. 
wildly strange, but also furiously bewitching. It's the reason you'll very likely pick up the novel, even after you put it down, and then pick it up yet again. The taste for cruelty in this novel was the element I couldn't digest well, and the reason I initially put it down. But the return of the repressed usually isn't about making you feel comfortable or at ease. No, it's about making you as uncomfortable as possible, making you look directly at the specter of horror that we would otherwise deny is part of our reality, the thing or moment or person that we would relegate to the edge of our lives and lines of vision and seeming interest. To this, I'm sure Lambert would add, that oblivion is not the answer, but gazing fully and directly on what horrifies us to tear it down. So he reminds us that destruction is our way to rebuild. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Since I've been dealing with a book of translation and to counterbalance this otherwise dark Halloween episode, I'm going to recommend a couple of translated books I recently had the pleasure to read by the Cremati writer Virginia Pesamapeo Bordelot. Her book, Blue Bear Woman, translated by the award-winning translators Susan Urio and Christelle Morelli, published by Inanna Press, and The Lover and the Lake, published by Freehand Books, also translated by Susan Uriu. Bordelot has an elegant, muted style of writing that allows the narrative she tells to be paramount. She's skillful, adept at capturing emotional depth and exploring relationships that are poignant, erotic, and tender. I particularly loved Blue Bear Woman, which at first seemed to be a literal journey the narrator was taking back to visit relatives, but which is also about her attempt to resolve the enigmatic death of her great-uncle George, who went missing in 1953 on his hunting expedition during a period of starvation. It's a simple, unassuming narrative that works in contrast with the real depth of emotion that informs it. That's it for this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please join me next week when I interview the children's literature author, Natalie Ruths, as we go from the darkness of this episode to the light and celebration for Diwali. Thanks for joining me today, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.